Welcome to episode four of the Analytics FC podcast. Today we have two guests on. We have Danny Page and Emily Dalhanty to talk about the Women's World Cup, which by the time you're listening to this will probably have just started. And uh, I know Emily and I are very excited about it because we have a World Cup in our own country for the first time ever, really. And for the first time probably in a very, very long time it will happen again. And uh, Danny's a big supporter of the women's national team and Tom, being from England, has a, an interesting perspective on this as well. So welcome, everyone. So, Emily, why don't you kick us off and tell us about yourself and your interest in uh, women's soccer? Sure. Um, so, as Sam said, yeah, um, super, super excited to have a World Cup on, like, in our own country. I woke up this morning, it kind of hit me, as like, I'm going to the opening game on Saturday. Uh, it's kind of unreal. Um, so yeah, mostly uh, what I focus on is um, I write for a site called Red Nation Online, um, focusing just on the Canadian women's national team. Um, and Sam has written there a bunch as well. Um, so that's my main focus. And I've done um, a couple kind of uh, advanced stats type things um, related to the women's game. Um, not a whole heck of a lot of stuff, just a couple of things, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do more in the future um, because I think it, yeah, it gives a whole new perspective and one that's like so new in the women's game and yeah, something that we can definitely build on um, and we'll get, we'll get into that. Sure. <laughs> so Emily probably doesn't want to brag, but uh, her piece on Abby Wambach was quoted in the New York Times piece on Abby Wambach, which is... <laughs> Better, better uh, sort of outreach that analytics has gotten in the men's game. I don't think men's analytics has ever been quoted in the New York Times. So Emily is now <laughs> out there as a bona fide New York <laughs> Times source, I guess, on analytics. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Uh, Danny, can you match that? Sure. Um, just in the last year or two, I would say, I started getting involved with analytics, generally following along with conversations online about uh, soccer and the advancement of analytics after seeing a lot of other American sports really embrace statistics and actually use it to make decisions uh, in a very informed way. Uh, started seeing the same thing happen in soccer and followed along. Um, I've been doing a little bit of stuff myself on uh, cynical.football or football, F-U-T-B-O-L. Yeah, so it's more of a just a way for me to get come my ideas out, um, you know, really try to progress things. And then when I saw that, you know, women's soccer didn't have a lot of analytics being applied to it, uh, I've started to look into that more thoroughly um, th and seeing what I can add to that as well. Both of you sort of have different perspectives coming into this from, I guess, Danny, you started, you sort of come from the analytics side and then come into the women's you've started by being a big supporter of women's football and then found the analytics side. But I guess you both sort of are coming at it by the idea that there's not much to work with. So what do you think are the biggest challenges? I guess Emily can start first and then Danny with specifically in women's football using analytics. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting because I know, as you know, Sam, we chatted about this. Um, it's, all, it's sometimes just the very basics that are really hard to find in women's football, whether it be on the national team level or the club level. So, I mean, all the 
all the frills kind of like, there's none of that obviously but um like sometimes it's even difficult to go back um say for the Swedish league or um a specific national team I guess I shouldn't call it the Swedish league in particular but all over um just even to get like minutes played and um stuff like that to do per 90 stuff and um yeah, it's just like, it's just little things like that that are difficult. And um, even going back to get, um, I was, I had to go back for like Japan National Federation's website. Because um, they didn't even, yeah, they didn't even have a list of who had played for them over the last few years and how many minutes each year they'd played. So it's just small things like that that just make it so difficult to begin with. I also think that that's definitely a big fault in women's sports in general um, and I was doing a bit of research beforehand and uh, I mean one of the things that 538 which has done quite a lot of work in this area about having data in sports um, have sort of phrased good data as being accurate, precise and subject to rigorous quality control and a great example which highlights the complete lack of good data in women's sports in general um, is that for the U.S. Men's PGA Tour, they have 100, pl- 100 plus performance metrics to measure sort of different things within the sport. Um, on the women's side of things, they have eight stats for the whole competition, which is just mm-hmm. like the the difference in the in the data available. Even though the sport's pretty much exactly the same, is just crazy. And like you said, <clears throat> having to go to these third party sources to find the data is t- so time consuming and makes you sort of value the the who scores and scorkers of this world so much more for the men's side of the game. Yeah, I had a I was writing an article on the Canadian women's team and found out that I was looking at games I only they're only five or six years back and found out that the time on the pitch added up to more available for the players and sent an email asking about it and found out that every single player who had played the match had been given 90 minutes. When, you, when you've got that data quality issue, doing the actual analysis becomes almost impossible. And the only sort of reliable um, women's data I've found is a site called um, allwhitekit.com and it's literally just a hand, like manually entered stats on a very simple WordPress, WordPress blog. And apart from that, there's no real sort of rigorous, consistent data that I've been able to find, which is just, I mean, there's obviously a gap in the market there, but it's whether you know, people can either crowdsource that data or stump up and buy up to data. Yeah, if I might throw it in a little bit too, it's uh, All White Kit's been great, and also the NWSL does have some of their own statistics, but they're really the exception when it comes to uh, the top women's football leagues. Um, fortunately, they collect, they try to collect you know, data, who's at least who's taking shots, you know, how many fouls are committed, that kind of basic uh, information. Um, you're not going to get opto-level statistics. Um, and really that comes down just to the amount of money that's going into the SAC collection. Um, for opto to do a game, that's going to cost a lot more than just you know having someone on the sideline do it. Um, it might not be as much data, but it, I'm glad that it's there. You, um, fortunately, on the NWSL, you can pull an XML feed and get some information from them, and they're glad to let people work with it. So um, it's just hopefully that you know we'll see more crowdsourcing, or perhaps the budgets will grow larger, and at which point we can start to see data collection companies um, really helping out 
sport and um, the leagues. At sort of this difference between the men's game and the women's game, one of the questions we had from Twitter was about if we can sort of use stats to quantify maybe these differences beyond uh, beyond any differences in sort of just the money. There also is differences, I think, in the styles we see. I've noticed a lot, this is just anecdotally, that women's teams play a lot more three at the back than I've seen men's teams play, which is sort of an interesting dichotomy between the two types of, the, the two uh the men's game and the women's game. And I'm wondering if you think there's any way we can look at stats to sort of figure out what might work in the men's game that doesn't work in the women's game or vice versa. Um, I'd have to say we'd have to start looking at distribution of the ball and the amount of pressing to see if there is a stylistic difference. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C., so I watch the Washington Spirit a lot, and they have a different style. They have a very like, high-press style um, that they employ. Um, which can work um, if you have women who are um, very fit, and they do. Um, and that might be something that works maybe because of a may, there might be a parity of fitness or um, the ball in women's football might not be as controlled as easily. Um, I've noticed that pass percentages might be a little bit lower than you know uh, the MLS, for example. Um, so it means that the ball is up for grabs a little bit more um, which means that high press me- gives you a better chance of turning over the ball. Um, so that might be one area where you could see some difference in style. Yeah, um, certainly adding on kind of to that. Um, I'd even say, you know, um, for the style of play sort of um, train of thought, um, for another NWS SL team, I'd say Kansas City, who um, who won won the championship last year. They're kind of known for playing the ball on the ground, um, and you know, a stat I would love to have more data on. You know, their passing uh, or how many long balls they attempt compared to some other teams that um, maybe aren't known for um, you know having such good passing on their team. Um, and yeah, I think um, further to that. Um, more stats, kind of, and, um, you know, there's a lot of comparisons, obviously, um, the women's game to the men's game, and um, sometimes they're not positive for the women's game, um, and if we had more data, then, you know, we could dive into some of those myths, right? So, um, stuff like, you know, it's not as technical, or they hit it long too much, which, I mean, certainly was the case um, in the early women's game as it was developing in the 90s and um, even, you know, with the Canadian women's national team. They were known for booting it to Christine Sinclair. <laughs> that was their game plan. But, um, yeah, you know, if we had more data, those kind of passing um, type data, we can maybe um, try to bust some of those myths and um, show that, yes, the women's game has come a long way and um, it's becoming more technical and, um, yeah, stuff like that. And in terms of competitiveness, are the, are the matches closer than the men's game or are they more free scoring? Like at a very high level of, of the basic stat being sort of, you know, the goals scored, goals conceded, what's it like, the main difference there? Um, I could make too much of a comparison, but um, I think definitely in the women's game, from the top 15 is really steep. Um, so that's something something that you notice kind of um, once you get out of that top, even top 10, then it can become pretty lopsided, um, which I'm sure can happen in the men's game as well. But I think that might be, 
even a bit more amplified in the women's game just uh, because it's not as developed? Yeah, it dep really depends on if you're talking about the, the domestic leagues or if you're talking international. Um, the in the like like Emily just said, in the international you'll find a kind of a trough um, after about fifteen twenty teams, and we might see some of that in the Women's World Cup where there might be a couple games that are decided by more than a you know three or four goals. Um, but that happens in the men's side as well when North Korea showed up a couple of World Cups ago, they got trounced um, by Portugal, I believe, by 8-1 to one or you know some number like that. So I don't think we're going to actually see too much of that in the women's game. I think there's going to be a lot of good games in this tournament. Um, and the same in the domestic leagues as well. There's a lot of good parity in the games. There aren't a lot of blowouts. They're, you know, they're going at each other, and they have great... Um, amount of equal skill uh, and so the differences are you know a lot of times just one goal so I think it's very competitive at both levels well I don't think the men's world cup can stand in any high horse and say that uh, they can avoid blowouts at the highest level at the games near the end of the tournament given what we saw in 2014 so I don't think a blowout is a sign of anything negative or positive it's just something that happens in the sport now, I want to get both of your overviews on your respective teams. So, Danny, what are your thoughts about the American team coming into this tournament? And, Emily, what about Canada? Sure. United States is an interesting position. Um, we're going with a lot of experience. We have a lot of players who have you know, hundreds and hundreds of caps um, between all of them combined. Hope Solo has 105, um, and then the next two goal keepers have like five and two so we're you know we're making sure that she has a lot of experience abby wambach of course um you know has has is basically america herself she is an image of america because she's been starting for them for so long um there's some thought of you know should abby be playing should we go to some of the younger players and it appears that the U.S. coaching, uh, Jill Ellis, uh, she's and her staff have decided that experience is what they would prefer uh, for this particular tournament. Uh, we'll see how well that works. Um, I'm always hopeful, you know, as a fan. Um, I would like to see some of the younger players get a, a shot, at least, you know, at least being on the roster. They, I think they left off some notables, including Crystal Dunn, who's the current uh, leader in goals in the NWSL, um, she would have made a great, great addition. Um, could have filled in, but I think we're going to go with in with a pretty good squad um, and just see how it, how it flies. So Emily, how are we going to beat them? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think Canada has an interesting squad too, um, but for some different reasons. Um, obviously, look. At, looking at your article as well, Sam, that you did um, for Sportsnet on the Canadian team, um, I think sometimes the average age for Canada's Women's World Cup squad, it almost doesn't tell the whole story. Um, so it's 28.22, um, you said was the average age. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing about that is that um, there's a big gap in the kind of 22 to 26 kind of age bracket um so i think um 
so there's a whole bunch of over 30-year-olds, that um, a bunch of them that could still get in the starting 11, and then there's some teenagers, you know, that are going to be in the starting 11 or um, 20-year-olds kind of thing. Um, so that kind of makes Canada's squad interesting in that we just, for a couple of years, just had such a last, uh, such a lack of development in one age category. It's really hurting the team now. Um, but um, saying that, um, yeah, there are some uh, some young um, young players that are really exciting. Um, Kadisha Buchanan, she's you know shut down the U.S. team a bunch in, since she started playing um, for Canada uh, two years ago. Um, yeah, and I think um, I think Canada's their some of their main questions is really scoring. Obviously, um, Sam knows we are not the most gifted attacking country in the world. <laughs> um, and, yeah, you know, Sinclair is um, an interesting one because she had a bad couple years after um, having an, an absolutely incredible 2012. Um, and she kind of only scored one goal for the national team last year. Um, but, um, yeah, after her, it's who's, who's kind of, Who's the secondary scoring? I think in, in Christine Sinclair's um, career for Canada, um, she scored about 0.7 goals per 90 um, with the national team. And then the next most on this roster is um, Leon, uh, Adriana Leon and Janelle Foligno, and they're both around 0.25 goals per 90, and Tancredi is 0.3. Um, so there's a big drop-off, and um, that'll raise a lot of questions about um, where the scoring's going to come from. You're right on that. The average age thing keeps getting thrown out, that they have a high average age. And when you look at it, I mean, it's, we're stats people, so we like standard deviations. And there's a huge deviation there when you've got a lot of younger players, and you do have that sort of missing generation from 22 <laughs> to 27 or 28. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's... It's something you, de- you definitely have to kind of dig more into to see, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting um, part of this team's history. I did a, a quick look over the Canada squad, and you've got seven of the team which are currently unattached or free agents. Is that a re- reflection on quality, or there just uh, there aren't teams available, or these players are in the off season, or because that's quite a high number considering? I think in the tournament overall, there's only 18 players unattached. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think it's a blend of kind of what you said, quality and um, just situation, kind of circumstance. Um, so Canada obviously has a majority of players in NWSL, and, um, which I think has been a positive step for our country because the amount of players now playing with clubs are, is probably higher than uh, what would have been without NWSL. Um, but I think some of them, as for the situation now, some of them um, just decided not to play club, um, play professionally for the start of this year, just um, so they could focus. Canada's gone into like a residency camp for a couple months over the last few years at the beginning of the year. So um, yeah, a couple of them chose just to focus on that um, for better or worse. Um, and, And an example of that would be um, who I think is Canada's best player right now, Sophie Schmidt. Um, I don't know if you saw that goal she scored on Friday against England, but um, it's really, really nice strike. Yeah, she's unattached, um, uh, and but she's in top form. So, um, yeah, it's just different individual situations, I think. 
Yeah, and I think there is, as you mentioned, there's the residency program. And residency has been a big part of the Canadian Women's Program ever since Pellerud was there, which was two coaches. And now we're getting up on 10 years ago. So it was. it's not that big of a worry that I think there's that many players unattached coming into the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions that we had from Twitter was, who are the other sort of key players apart from Christine Sinclair? Uh, for Canada and to sort of stretch that question further who are the sort of key players that you guys feel are in the tournament for all the nations so say we had um, James Rodriguez, Messi etc for the men's game who are the sort of standout female players at this World Cup? Sure yeah maybe I'll throw out some Canadian ones there for the first part Um, I think uh, one of our defensive midfielders Desiree Scott um, plays her uh, club football in England. Um, she's going to be one of the keys for Canada, just um, protecting that back four. And um, yeah, she's a really important player. Um, Schmidt, as I mentioned as well. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Diana Matheson uh, is recovering from some injuries, including ACL tear. So um, it's kind of unclear she'll play in the tournament at all. Um, so that's a big blow there. She would have been, you know, one of Canada's um, players to watch. Um, but yeah, a couple players for Canada. Definitely the scoring is lacking, um, but uh, they have some veterans on defense, so can try to lock down that side of things. <laughs> and what about outside Canada, Danny? Are there any players we should look out for? Yeah, a couple that I would definitely pay attention to. Um, so Germany, um, their goalkeeper, Angerer, is a player for, she plays for the Portland Thorns in NWSL, and while her club record hasn't been too great this year, um, for Germany, they did absolutely well during qualification. Um, they had the best goal differential. They have an amazing back line that really supports her. So any shots she's getting aren't going to be the best shots anyway. The, they're gonna, she's going to have that kind of help. So if Germany has a couple of shutouts early, if Unger is doing pretty well, then... I'd look to them to see if they win a couple of one games um, through the knockout round. And then over in France, um, really, you could almost point at the entire team of France. I, I think we don't pay too much attention to the, to the French women, but the way they took apart the U.S. team uh, during the friendly a couple of months back, they have a lot of talent throughout the squad. Um, so they might be considered... You know, a dark horse just because we're not that familiar with them um, over here in, in North America. But I think they're definitely a team to check out as well. I would say watch for their um, strikers, and you know, uh, you'll see some good quality striking. And I think we'll do. Um, they're going to be a fun team to watch as well. Yeah, I'll jump in there and um, just offer another uh, striker. Uh, Celia Sasich from Germany. Um, she'll be one to watch as well. Um, plays with Frankfurt um, and actually just won the Champions League title. So, um, yeah, she's a <laughs> dangerous striker and um, 21 goals, I believe, this just uh, this past season for Frankfurt. Um, yeah, she's one of uh, Germany's main threats. And, um, yeah, she's a lot to handle. <laughs> So we've talked about sort of three of the main four favorites. We've talked about the States, Germany, and France. We haven't talked at all about the defending champions coming to this tournament, who are Japan. 
what kind of squad does Japan have this time around? And you think there's any chance that they'll repeat as champions? I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how they've done in the last couple of years, um, building on that success. I actually watched the final last night, and that was it was kind of excruciating to you know knowing the result of that final. Um, but I was kind of trying to see you know who they might be depending on, um, and their their captain and lean scores us uh, uh, Sawa. Uh, she's 36. It will be her sixth World Cup. Um, if she still has some talent, I mean, watch her. She's, you know, she might be the bellwether um, for that team. Uh, but they've also got some other players. Miyama um, is a small midfielder, but she is extremely deadly with the free kick. Um, so they they're currently fourth in the rankings and FIFA. FIFA rankings for the women's side are actually um, quite spot on. Uh, they use a modified ELO system that takes into account the scoreline, which is um, pretty cool and means it might have some good indication of how good this team is going to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you kind of just look at just look at Japan's squad list and look at their clubs, a lot of really great individual players playing at really high-level clubs. Um, and yeah, they played Canada um, in the fall, just this past fall, uh, a series of friendlies. Um, and yeah, they can just uh, move the ball on the ground so well. Um, and they're just they're just fun to watch. I mean, I can't say it was fun to watch Canada uh, them run around Canada for two games, but um, yeah, they're they're uh, a really good squad, as Danny said. And also another point to that would be the draw. Kind of if you look at their draw, they got. Uh, not a bad group at all, and um, kind of on that side of the bracket, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, they could have a clear path right to the semis and um, not have to do a whole heck of a lot of work, I think. Yeah, 538 in their projections has them getting to the semifinals 41% of the time, and that's the highest of U.S. and Germany. So their, their path to the finals is kind of laid out for them. Uh, what do you guys think of England's chances? I think they have a good chance. They're six in the world. Um, Five thirty-eights giving them, you know, a little bit of a chance. Uh, you know, they're one of the few teams that have more than one percent chance to make it to the final. Um, and I, the problem with England might be just that they're in a crowded group. Um, they have France, Mexico, and Colombia in their group, and none of those teams are going to go easily. It could be a very um, I mean, they can get out of the group by placing third and being one of the top four teams to place third. But it might be they might get banged up getting out of the group. Um, but they're a great, great team as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think, yeah, it's a tough group. Um, Mexico can obviously um, give some teams some scares for sure. I think, yeah, I think England will be okay in getting out of their group. Um, but I don't know if they have the... Yeah, I don't know if they have the quality to, to make a deep run. Um, but, yeah, I, I can't see them not, not getting out of the group. Um, but uh, you're right. Yeah, could get banged up and that sort of thing. Um, now, one group that a lot of people is talking about is Group D, which has been labeled the group of death with the U.S., Sweden, and Australia all in the same group. And I'm just, I've got the 538 odds in front of me right now. And that's the only group that has three teams in it with a higher chance, with a higher probability than a one percent chance of winning the tournament. They've got Australia at two percent, they have the U.S. at twenty-eight percent, and Sweden at five percent. 
So I'm curious, which two teams do you think will come out of that Group D, Group of Death? Uh, I think um, everything being made of the United States and their recent form and maybe lack of chemistry um, uh, are definitely valid points for later in the tournament, but um, I can't really see them not getting out of the group um, unless something you know pretty bad goes goes kind of goes wrong in their first game against Australia. Um, so I think the U.S. will will go through for sure. Um, and yeah, this one is tough to call, as you said, with with the odds, because each three of these um, the remaining teams have have a lot to give, and Australia is a young team, but they have some great young attackers. And, um, you know, I watched Sweden practice actually last week in Toronto, and they have a pair up front as well, Lata Shellen and Kosovari Aslani. Um, hopefully I didn't butcher those names. But, um, yeah, another pair of young um, but experienced strikers that can give back lines um, some trouble. And Nigeria as well. Um, they played Canada to a, a nil-nil draw in a training match last week, and um, they're a very physical team. Um, and that's something I think sometimes the United States doesn't match up against a lot, because, um, including Canada, because you know they're known for both being incredibly physical teams themselves. And so I think you know Nigeria can bully their way around um, around the group a bit. Um, so that being said, anyway, that's my roundabout way of saying. Um, I think the U.S. and Sweden will go through. Um, I don't know if Australia will be able to rack up enough points to get in as a third-place team, but um, I would think they would. Australia would finish third. Yeah, I think I'll agree with that ranking. Um, but Nigeria does have an interesting chance to pick up a point here or there. Um, you know, if USA has one of their games like they did against South Korea where they played uh, to 0-0, zero, zero, draw. Um, Nigeria has a great striker. Uh, she plays for the Washington Spirit. Um, she got the game-winning goal in her last match before she went off the training. Um, and she did it by just uh, fighting and being the quickest on the pitch. Um, she took a nice long pass, put it like a perfect touch, and then was able to lift it right over the keeper who was diving at her. Uh, so she's got a lot of skill. She's always fighting for the ball in the box. So it could be possible that Nigeria steers, steals one from one of these three other teams and really messes up what we think might happen with that group. Um, so, so that's always a possibility. Again, they have a 61% chance of going out, but that, that 40% chance to advance is still there for the taking. So, um, yeah, just watch for Ardega, and it'll be an interesting group, definitely. So this World Cup's changing from uh, 16 to 24 teams. What do you guys make of that change? Do you think it's going to make the competition more exciting, purely because there's a, a longer tournament and it's um, sort of showing the growth of the game? Or do you think it's going to show sort of the um, quality being more diluted and sort of pulling in those lower-ranking teams? Um, I, I like the switch, honestly. Um, I know dilution is obviously a... Um, a concern for anything, even for, you know, leagues that bring in a new team. Um, but I think the quality has risen a lot, um, even since the Olympics. So give that another year since the last world cup as well. Um, quality in a lot of the teams has risen. Um, and I can, you know, point to one team, for example, in the Netherlands, um, 
as an example, kind of people are calling them a dark horse kind of for the tournament. Um, and it's their first World Cup. Um, so, you know, entering your first World Cup um, and some people thinking, you know, you'll go far is, is um, kind of just shows maybe the, the level that has risen and, um, and that the tournament is ready to, to be expanded for sure. Um, the only thing I would say about the expansion is um, a lot of the third place teams go through. So that kind of, I mean, obviously, um, it gives a, it gives a, um, it gives those teams a, a tougher, a tougher, you know, route to uh, in the knock knockout stage if they come third. But um, it maybe allows for slip ups a little bit more, um, seeing as you know that you could go through as one of those um, lucky losers. I guess that's such a track track and field term, <laughs> but um, yeah, as one of those third place teams. Yeah, I was going to say the same. It's the development of the game over the last four years has been astounding. There's better leagues that a lot of leagues are getting better funded or are getting funded all um, in the domestic leagues. And on the international stage, we're seeing a lot of programs get a lot more attention and a lot more um, funding and training as well. And like Emily said, having that third place slot be open for potential advancement really is going to make it exciting. Um, in the 2011 Cup, there was just four groups, top two go, and that's just it. And while it's clean and simple, you know, it's not as exciting. Here we've got some groups where, you know, I could definitely see someone um, playing an earlier game. Uh, like uh, Group A finishes June 15th um, for their games, but they might be waiting on a game until June 17th uh, when Group F to see if they're going to go through or not. You know, so then you've got so then the audience is going to be paying attention, especially during those last three days of the group stage. Um, no matter what, just because their team might be in third place, they're not sure if they're going to go through. You know, one team, one goal that might not mean too much for one team in that group might mean a ton for another so it's gonna be really fascinating to watch okay so i want now your final predictions who's gonna win and who's gonna be in the final emily you want to start cool sure um i think france is gonna win um and i think on the other side it's gonna be japan that goes through um i think I think Canada might make a run, possibly to the semis at the most, just because of their kind of favorable draw. Um, but I don't think they'll be beating Japan anytime soon. Um, so yeah, those two, France, France, France is going to win it. Let's see. Um, I mean, I want to say the U.S. That's what my heart says, but I'm not sure if that's going to work out. It relates on the injuries. Alex Morgan might not play for a game or two. Um, there might be some un- other injuries. I think it might be... I'm going to have to agree that France makes it. I don't think they win. I think Ger- Germany does the first World Cup double um, in history, and then the men's and the women's teams would be cha- uh, champions at the same time. So that's going to be my prediction. Germany wins 1-0 uh, against France. I'll give my shot at it. I just I'm looking at the bracket right now, and uh, we've talked about this a lot actually on in Canadian soccer circles. That Canada actually has a really nice path to the semis. I mean, we have to play England, but we just beat them. 
and they're England. It's a World Cup. England in a World Cup is never a good thing. So I feel pretty good <laughs> about Canada making the semis once we get there. So I'm gonna, I'll have a homer pick of Canada losing in the final to Germany. I think I'm going to jump on the France bandwagon. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'd like to put my faith in the 538 model uh, and see a US-Germany final, but for the sake of, yeah, go for something a bit different. Maybe also Japan, uh, like you guys are saying, quite a technically exciting team. But for me, France, although I'd like to see England get, you know, as far as they can possible and not knocked out in, on penalties. That's all I wish for. <laughs> a US-Germany final will also be very difficult because one of them would have to not win their groups in order to not meet up in the semifinals. Would so even though they're the two highest teams in the 538 model, it would be unlikely for them both to finish, to be the two finalists. Which is quite an interesting yeah, point. We- um, sorry, quite an interesting point to see whether they've actually factored that in, the fact that one of them's got to finish second. Um, yeah, I think they're probably doing simulations. Uh, I think they ran 20,000 simulations and used that information. So, um, you notice they didn't say who the most likely final matchup was. So, mm, yeah. maybe not. True. And we just wanted to finish off by asking if either of you are going to any games of the tournament, if there's particular games you're looking forward to, what you're excited about. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to um, I'm going to the first game, actually, Saturday. So, from here in the Toronto area to Edmonton um, and watch that first game against China, um, which will definitely be nerve-wracking. <laughs> um, and then I'll be in Montreal, as I think you will, Sam, as well, um, yeah. for Canada's third group game against the Netherlands, which, um, yeah, definitely will be one to watch as well. Um, hopefully, well, I mean, it would be nice if it didn't mean anything <laughs> and Canada already... You know, we're going through, but um, I think it'll be a good game uh, otherwise. And and we'll see from there after uh, what happens in the knockout round if I can get my way uh, to another game. I'll unfortunately be staying in the States, but I'm definitely looking forward to U.S. versus uh, Sweden. Um, maybe U.S. Canada if that happens, uh, which is quite possible. Uh, that That's always fun. But... Uh, in the group stage, U.S. versus Sweden is going to be great. Um, we have living in the Washington D.C. area. We have a lot of different embassies. So last year, um, the German embassy put on an event um, in one of the parks where they projected the game on this huge screen. Everybody got together in the park and just watched. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it sounds like the Swedish embassy is doing the same thing this year. So that should be a lot of fun. And just walking around Washington, D.C. is great be, during these World Cups because you get to see a lot of people um, get out their, their kits and support their country. So um, I'm just looking forward to the entire tournament. You know, it seems like the World Cup, having two World Cups is a, is a lot of fun. Um, and I'm glad we, you know, the Women's World Cup is getting so much attention this year. As one final thing I'm looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to see if Sepp shows up in Canada or if he's too worried he's going to get extradited immediately upon landing in the country. <laughs> yeah. So I think that about wraps it up. Thanks to Danny and Emily for coming on. Well, keep listening, subscribe on iTunes, and give us a rating. As I said last time, higher than two. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>